Hello and welcome to series two of the Training for Influence podcast. Our aim is to help you deliver the best training possible. We'll be exploring how to make the most of every single second in a training session and how to deliver training so that it has added influence. You'll be hearing from me, Tammy Banks, and I'll be chatting with Training for Influence graduates, facilitators and experts who can speak to each of the steps. Expert, tailored, engaging and values-led. We hope you find these podcasts really beneficial. It's my great pleasure today to speak to clinical psychologist Warren Larkin. Warren has dedicated his career to working with people who have experienced trauma and adversity, and he now delivers training helping other professionals realise the difference a relationship and understanding can make. In this podcast, Warren talks to the importance of trauma-informed. He also talks about the methodology and how he wishes that over 20 years ago, there was a framework like this that he could have used. Thank you very much for joining us today, Warren. It's brilliant to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about what you do? And what your background is. Okay, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, that's my profession. And I spent the first part of my career working in the asylums, I suppose, before they were closed, the old long stay hospitals. And then I moved into first episode psychosis services as a therapist, and then later on as a service manager. Then I went into senior management and became clinical director for children and family services, the NHS in Lancashire. I got involved in system change, policy development with the Department of Health and various kind of national policy change and reform groups. And then after 20 odd years, 24 years in the NHS, I left and set up my own company. So I now run Warren Larkin Associates, inventively titled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I basically do what I've, what I've done since day one, really, which is try and educate people about trauma and adversity and how that leads very often to people struggling to cope in life and trying to raise awareness about that, but also trying to deliver education and training to organisations and, and professionals to increase the confidence in working with people who've experienced trauma and adversity. And crucially, one of the things I do a lot of is trying to help teams and services to ask people appropriately about adversity so that they can then give them an appropriate therapeutic response. And I write some stuff, and I'm also a visiting professor at University of Sunderland. That's it's it. Fair I think. To say, um, you're quite busy then, Warren. Yeah, well, just like <laughs> you, yeah. I think what that means is I'm just not very good at managing my diary. I think that's why I'm busy. <laughs> it's like juggling lots of balls, but all very much connected to each other, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are definitely. And it sounds like we have, well, clearly we've, we met recently and we've got a lot in common, both in terms of our route into this world of delivering training to professionals, but also in terms of our interest in trauma and, you know, trauma-informed approaches. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. looking forward to talking to you a bit more about that. Oh, thank you. I think it'd be really clear to our listeners or the watchers, if they're watching the video of this, of why I've kind of asked you here today. So I sent you out of the blue, really, didn't I? The introduction to my new book and also the fourth chapter, the values led chapter of the book. Now, yeah, you made me work for this, didn't you? You didn't <laughs> tell me I was going to have to do loads of homework, but um, <laughs> lots of reading. Fortunately, I learned something from it, which was good. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> so, for the listeners' benefit, really, I don't really know what you're going to say today. So, we did only meet, we met through a colleague and actually a family member of yours only a few months back. 
and we found out through our first conversation that we had lots in common with regards to our perspectives the way that we value people how we work with people and then some connected kind of historical work elements and things like that and then We've talked under the umbrella of the Resilience Task Force, which is a fantastic campaign that you're running at the moment. So that's kind of how we got into contact with each other. So we don't know each other particularly well. And then I sent you the introduction to my new book and chapter four and asked you if you would tell me your thoughts on it. Yeah, so you want me to do a live review of your book on this broadcast. That's a very risky strategy. Ish. And I say ish because I sent it very specifically with respect to one of the elements that kind of sits under our values-led approach. So we talked just before I clicked record about the training for influence methodology and the four different elements of it. So the expert, the tailored, the engaging, and then the golden thread, which is the values. Yeah. But within that golden thread, it's about valuing yourself as a facilitator, valuing your delegates, and then role modeling your delegates, valuing their service users. Yeah. And the bit where you're undoubtedly connected is the element within that methodology where we say, if you're delivering to frontline professionals who are delivering services to people who have complex needs and or vulnerabilities, then actually one of the best ways that you can value them is to have an understanding and an overview and a recognition of what trauma-informed practice is and to deliver your services from a trauma-informed approach. Yeah. And that's why it's on that basis, not really a full review. No, of no, the, I know. Although I'm please do, do, I know, do think. But. Well, I suppose just working backwards, I think I've been talking to groups of people for a very long time about trauma and adversity. Probably for about 21 years, I was 24, I was trying to change attitudes and beliefs about trauma being important in people's lives. And you know, I went into mental health services at a time when the prevailing view was that poor mental health is all about funny brain chemistry and dodgy genes, you know. So my, my kind of mission was, when I recognised it for myself, that I needed to change the status quo, you know, change the received wisdom, that that isn't the case purely, that's too simple, that actually it's very much about life events for a lot of people. So that's where my interest came. And I think your methodology, your four aspects, is really helpful. And I wish I'd known about that when I was starting out, because I think like most people who end up in training and consultancy, you kind of learn it through experience, don't you? You kind of, you almost learn it by making lots of mistakes and you learn it by gathering experiences over the years. But I think if I was starting out, I think if I was taking on a role where there was a significant amount of training or if I was taking on a new position or I was embarking on something where I was going to have to convey a lot of knowledge and skills to people, I think having your book as a, as a guide and your methodology would be really helpful. I think that'd be fantastic for people. So all of those things, no, all of those things make perfect sense to me. And like I say, it could save people a lot of time because you do make a lot of mistakes and having a framework in your mind, which you can check off as you're developing a training course or a seminar or a workshop, that's fantastic because most people just focus on the content, you know, they focus on the content and go, oh, I need to break it up a bit with an exercise or I need to make sure I put enough breaks in. For a lot of people, it's very content driven. Or the flip side is it's very charisma driven. So the content isn't that good, but they've got a lot of charisma, so they managed to get away with it. Or the content's brilliant, but they're really dull to listen to. So I think most of the time, that's what you tend to get. Sometimes you get people who've got all of those things that you describe in your methodology, you know, that it's very values driven, first hand expertise that they can draw on. The other two things that you said as well, they have those two <laughs> things <laughs> the uh, tailored approach, the ability to tell you. To the organisation, of course, that's that's absolutely crucial. 
and then the final one which was engaging in the learning part of it it's a different learning styles so i think you've crammed in what a lot of us have had to learn the hard way but i think you know it makes a lot of sense and then coming on to the values when you work with people with complexity and you're trying to train and educate and support and provide skills for those people you've got to have a touchstone you've got to have a like you said in your, in your book a golden thread which is the values because I always remember one of my supervisors saying to me when I was in training, when things are incredibly complicated, you know, because I work with some of the most complex presentations, some of the most complex people, you have to try and make it simple. You know, you can't address complexity with complexity. That doesn't work. So the more complex the client group and the scenarios that you're facing, the more you have to be able to come back to the principles of what you signed up for, the values that drive your practice and your thinking. So when it gets complex, we have to hold on to those constants which are our values so yeah that resonated with me a lot no i'm really glad about that because one of the things for me was as we were driving this methodology was the fact that we didn't set up to be a training company it's the fact that we worked in the sector for so many years and actually were trying to meet a need and actually the methodology came from us trying to find a creative solution of being able to give frontline professionals what they need to be able yeah. to deliver their services in yeah. the best possible way. And one of the things that's really important, and we've talked previously about my history when I was a child and why this means so much to me, and also your experiences when you first started working in the profession and actually how devastating some of those were. And we've talked previously about that trauma-informed perspective being yeah. so important, actually being a real game changer in the way that people deliver services. There's a real gap, isn't there, with regards to actually, there's, there's a whole host of fantastic academics or clinicians who absolutely know the nth degree and the detail of trauma-informed processes and, and how to work within them. But equally, there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands, actually, of frontline practitioners working with people with complex needs. And those people with complex needs will never get to one of the clinicians. Yeah. They will never get to the academics. And actually, they don't need to, but they will still benefit from somebody delivering a service yeah. from a trauma yeah. perspective. Well, absolutely. And that's, you know, we talked last time about the work that I do around training professionals to ask about adversity, the REACH programme. And that was very much born out of this idea that unless we can have insight in someone's life, unless we can connect with them on some level, how can we possibly know how to help them? You know, unless we ask people what their journey's been, we're just giving them what we think should be the right response. You know, it's a very biomedical approach, isn't it? It's kind of, here's the symptoms that we can see, let's treat it in this way, and then hopefully that'll cure the problem. You know, one of the key things that I always think have in the forefront of my mind when I'm working with a group of people, a group of staff or a service or an organization is that we all signed up for the same reason. You know, we kind of all signed up because we wanted to help people, wanted to make a difference. We wanted to contribute to society. And the most powerful tool we've got on all of that is understanding someone's journey and knowing where they've come from and how they got here. And one of the best things we can do for them is to help them have some perspective on what they've had in their life. So, you know, given I've been through this, yeah, it kind of makes sense that I'm struggling with these things. Or given that I've been through these things in my life, it makes sense that I'm having some problems with my mental health. Yeah. So it allows people to have a bit of compassion for themselves. And then the other, the other thing that I hold very dear is the idea that relationships are the things that make the difference. Relationships are the mechanism for healing. You know, like you said, every professional you come into contact with who works with, I read it in your book as well, and you said it to me last time, every professional who works with someone with complexity and vulnerability, they have an opportunity to change that person's life. 
they have that opportunity. And I think on our podcast last time for the Association of Child Protection Professionals, I told you about the guy I worked with at Presswich Hospital who hadn't spoken for over 20 years. And then he, after two years of trying to get him to talk to me, he eventually spoke to me, which was kind of mind blowing. And that purely was about the strength of the connection that we had between each other and the trust. I didn't have any therapeutic skills. I was an assistant. I was just learning, you know, I wasn't qualified. But what I had was a strong relationship with this guy. So that idea that we can change someone's direction, someone's trajectory by having a strong connection speaks to the values, doesn't it? About compassion and about seeing beyond what you see, you know, the physicality of somebody and seeing inside and what they've been through and maybe where they're going, seeing their humanity. And also this idea of empathy is not enough. You know, feeling with somebody is kind of, it's a nice thing to do, but actually compassion is empathy coupled with an intention to help somebody. Yeah. You know, that's what we need. And I think services very often and jobs very often become very technical. So you learn all these skills, you go on all these courses and you learn technical expertise and um, procedures and complex processes. And particularly nursing and medicine and professions like that and psychology are very technical. And actually, sometimes that gets in the way of us listening to people and hearing them and being with them with the intention to try and alleviate some of the suffering. So ultimately using a compassionate relationship as a way of creating the opportunity for change. So for me, you've got to be really clear in your mind about what the values are that you bring to your role and what the values are that you bring to your training. And part of what I see in like you in your chapter very clearly, one of the opportunities you've got when you're training a group of people is take that step back, get the head out of the day to day and go, why did you sign up for this? What, what's important to you? What matters? And in the midst of all this chaos, when things are highly complex, what are the simple things that guide your decision-making? Yeah. I think that's what I was reminded of when I read your chapter early on. And it's interesting because we, we talk about values of being the golden thread and the trauma-informed element is one part of that. But right from the first thing that people, when they come into any sessions from somebody who's been trained for our methodology, one of the first things that we do in the introductions is talk about what is your why? and connect them back to their emotional reason for joining this role in the first Absolutely. place. And then we purposely, through the training courses, we teach the facilitators to be able to distance the delegate from all of the noise that's happening. So all of the austerity measures, the fact yeah, that their yeah. caseload is twice as big as it was two months ago, the fact that COVID now means that they can't see people face to face or whatever it is, we get people to disconnect from that noise for a moment and emotionally reconnect to the reason they joined the job in the first place. Yeah. And if we can get the other side of the brain work, and if we can get their emotional intelligence kind of fizzling a little bit, then as we go through the session, yeah. they're going to be absorbing the information. Yeah, and I totally agree. I totally relate to that because one of the things I said to the associates, the people I work with who help me in delivering my work, I always say to them, your job is to make those people care about the things that you care about to get them to feel emotional about it. So they go away feeling something strongly one way or the other. We don't want anybody going away going, yeah, well, it's all right. We want yeah. them to be provoked into an emotional experience. And ultimately, if you get it right, it's an awesome experience, i.e. they feel a sense of awe, like, oh my God, I see the world in a different way. Or I see the world clearer in terms of why I signed up in the first place. I remember those reasons and those feelings for doing this job. It's exactly what you're saying, you know? So I think you have to kind of remind people of the reasons of their why, if you like, of their reasons for getting out of bed. And I think because things are so pressured at the minute and because things are so stressful and tiring, 
there's even more value in doing that because we know that when people are connected to their values and their raison d'etre, their why, that's what sustains people in difficult times. That discretionary effort that the NHS, for example, relies on to function, that 30% of discretionary effort, people going the extra mile, that is about knowing your reason for being in that job. Yeah. And yeah. if you forget that, you're just going through the motions, you're just turning up for the paycheck. And I don't think you can do a job where you work with complexity and you work with people who are suffering from vulnerability or having tough life experiences. I don't think you should be doing a job like that if you've become too far removed from your reasons for doing that. That isn't a job, that's a vocation, you know. Absolutely. I think we have to be kind to our frontline professionals and recognising that compassion fatigue is real. Do you Definitely. know, it really is. Yeah. And you might go into a role absolutely knowing what your why is and having all of the good intentions in the world. And actually time, situation, complexities, your own life, external to work, all of those things. Time after time after time, I've certainly been in situations and I've had to take a break or move roles or do something different where actually for me, for my own emotional resilience, I knew that actually I wasn't being a good professional. Do you know, yeah. I have a mantra, if you've done everything you can possibly do to the best of your ability within the constraints of your role, then that's all you can do. Yeah. Um, and I kind of live my life by that. And I say that to people on courses all of the time. Sometimes though, we get to the position where actually we can't do the best that we can do. We're not yeah. able to. And at that point, we need to recognize and do something about it. And that's absolutely entwined within the values element that as is, well. Yeah, totally. So that's one of the other things that stood out is this idea of self-care. You know, that's got to be, looking after yourself has got to be one of the values, hasn't it? Because if you're in a role where you use your relationship as a way of helping people, as that's your medium for change, you have to be in a good place yourself. You have to have something left to give. So I think caring for yourself is a fundamental priority when you're doing a caring profession, you know, doing a caring job. But one of my values is if we're not caring for the people that care for the people, they're not going to last very long. They're going to end up with compassion fatigue. They're going to end up with secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. And that's in nobody's interests. But so to be fair, that's literally the whole reason behind the methodology in this way, because after 20 years in the sector and trying to, like I've gone on and on and on about yeah. it, the people on the front line, myself included when I was there, yourself included when you were there, actually is it the biggest resource that anybody has. And yeah. I'm with you, do you know, relationships are completely what changes lives. That's exactly what does it. And our frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to be able to do that. But yet if we're not looking after them, then we can't expect them to deliver the services no. that complex and vulnerable people need. And we can't forget that they potentially might be complex and vulnerable as well at different points in their lives. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, the majority of the English population have experienced at least one form of adversity and 70% of people report one traumatic event in their life. Now, whilst most people cope with that in some way, there are equally lots of people that we know who've had multiple experiences or experiences that they haven't got over those people are us they're the workforce you know so i think unless your organization is acknowledging that you are a person too and that maybe you went into this job for a reason because it resonates with you then that's another missed opportunity you know to, to create resilience in the workforce and i think probably the third thing that came back to me and i read your chapter was sometimes the organization that you're working for exposes certain values but they don't live them you're not seeing that being played out in the way the organization behaves in the way that the culture shows up in the workplace and in the way that sometimes the very senior leaders in those organizations behave as well so sometimes you're kind of like well 
I know what my values and my moral compass is, but I don't feel I'm being looked after. And I don't also feel that the culture that I'm a part of is supporting these values being lived on a day-to-day basis. And that is when you feel, you talked in your book about cognitive dissonance. You know, that's when you feel, I'm a square peg in a round hole here. I don't think I can sustain my way of doing things and my beliefs in this context. I can't do it anymore because I'll become too much like this. And there is a really tough decision to be made when you find yourself in that position because you think, well, can I change things? Or have I tried to change things and I've not got anywhere? Or do I have to protect myself and my values and my beliefs and my integrity and I have to go somewhere else? And I think sometimes, sadly, that is a choice that professionals have to make. Otherwise, the culture will assimilate you. I've personally seen it, but I think we've seen it nationally. Some of the, I was going to say recent governmental changes, but actually they're not recent at all anymore. Do you know, we've seen some of the changes within social care, the changes within transforming rehabilitation, within criminal justice, and we've seen droves and droves of good values-led frontline practitioners leaving because actually they're not willing to work within the expectations that have been laid down. Actually, one of the reasons why the methodology was even derived was to try and be a creative solution to actually help top up people's emotional resilience and to help them recognize on the training courses that are going on irrelevant of the subject to give them some of what they might not have been getting elsewhere so actually that moment of okay actually everybody in this room even if you don't feel like the sector is going in the right direction even if you don't feel like your organization is living its mission even if you think the values are incongruent to yours Look around you at the people in this room, the ones of you that are seeing people face to face every day. And let's take a moment to recognize the difference you're making in their world. Like I I think I put in the book actually about, I think it's a starfish parable that I put in there. And it's like, have you you seen that? Yeah, you're not changing the world for everybody, but actually by throwing that one starfish back in, you're changing the world for that one starfish. And sometimes, Certainly in my early career, sometimes that was all that got me through. Do you know, it was absolutely living for the delivery that I was giving to the service user. Yeah, that's a really important point as well, isn't it? And I was thinking when I read that about the, you know, making a difference one relationship at a time kind of idea that when we evaluated the REACH program where we had to train teams to ask about adversity, one of the things that came out was professionals said it reconnected them with their purpose for signing up to the job in the first place. It helped them feel compassion for their clients and it helped them realize and feel that they were making a difference in somebody's life. And it was that one conversation about what had happened to you, how it's affected your life, and do you want some help with it? And they were feeling that that was helping them avoid burnout. Yeah. When you connect with your values, it is very sustaining. And I think you're right, you know, you can be in a team where you're all sharing the same values and attitudes and behaviors, and you can be in an organization that isn't too healthy, but you can be doing really well and having a great time and having, you know, living the best life you can in that professional role because you've got a little bubble a little microcosm you know we're talking a lot about protective bubbles but that can you know i've worked in teams where the organization frankly i've not had a great deal of confidence in but actually the team around me that's all i've needed to get through you know so yeah absolutely that's a really great example i think from my perspective it really is about ideally what i think needs to happen within the sector if we can is let's get everybody to go on a program like the reach program so yeah. all of the frontline professionals hundreds of thousands of them actually 
and let's do it regularly as well. Do you know, not just one off, but actually as part of the CPD, they should be going on an intensive program and go on the training like the REACH program and go through that process and then have that opportunity to reset, reevaluate, and I guess restart to an extent yeah. as well. But realistically, the reason why we ended up driving the methodology is because the time, the money involved in sending people off onto a program like that unfortunately lots of people don't make that decision with their budgets now yeah. if i could twist their arms honestly yeah. warren you would have a queue right around the country and i know people come to you and they get so much benefit from it but actually ideally every frontline professional would have some yeah. type of cpd that's specifically about them and their emotional resilience rebuilding yeah. it kind of filling their bucket back up Completely. so they can then continue delivering those services yeah uh, but Absolutely. in the absence of that, I think what we're trying to do is that on their mandatory training that they have to go to, which most of them come to dragging their heels. Yeah. That's the um, good thing. It's, it's mandatory. There's something really good about that. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, what we've kind of done, and not everybody that delivers training for influence delivers mandatory training. So people deliver all sorts of different training yeah. and use the methodology. But actually, the, the special thing about it when we started deriving it was the fact that by putting the methodology on top of mandatory training, we were sneaking in and nowhere near to the detail or impact they would have on a dedicated program like REACH, but actually introducing and reminding them on sessions that they have to come to yeah, of the importance of their emotional resilience and of the importance of valuing their service users. What you described and is absolutely what, what is possible and what we need is that, you know, every professional who works in these sectors needs to do mandatory safeguarding training or mandatory de-escalation training or what, all the different things you need to do. Like you said, every one of those is an opportunity to reignite people's passion, to kind of get them back in touch with why they signed up, you know, to kind of remember what put fire in the belly in the first place. And, and well, to influence the way that they work with service users, because yeah. quite often we'll have new people in the room who are ready to just literally take on everybody's perspectives. Yeah. And it can be really powerful for a facilitator who's walked the walk to share some of their mistakes within that. And then we can also have some people in the room that kind of know a lot of different information. They've been around a while, but actually they've got a bit jaded now because yeah, they yeah. think that everybody's the same. Everybody that comes through is like the next person. So actually they're not treating people or giving them the opportunity to change like they would have done 15 years ago or what, whatever it is. Well, what you're describing to me, in my last job as clinical network director for the Children and Families Service and Children and Families Network, Every month I used to sit in these governance meetings with a big sheet of the mandatory training and it'd tell me which services were compliant with the 90% requirement for mandatory training and yeah. how much it was actually costing us when people didn't turn up and how much it cost us when people went off sick and all of that. And it was like the fourth bridge. It was like one of those things where it was always about compliance, right? Had they done it? And what we didn't measure, what we didn't seem to focus on very often was what difference has this made? You know, it's more about, well, we know we have to do it. We know it's important people do it. Have they done it? What we didn't talk a lot about was what was the feedback people gave us from that? Did they feel that it was of value? Did they feel inspired? Did they feel reinvigorated? You know, yeah. that's probably 99% of the organisations in the country that have a constant battle trying to just get people to comply with the mandatory regulations and their legal obligations. 
so that's i think by putting in your focus on on meaning and values and connecting people to why they started in mandatory training as well as other forms but particularly mandatory training which nobody wants to do imagine if they came up to one that's training for influence accredited then they want to come right well of course so they come off that course and they go do you know what for the first time i've done this safeguarding course and i actually feel like it was really valuable or I've done this course 20 times in my NHS career, but this is the first time that I really felt it meant something to me, you know. One of my um, favourite pieces of feedback, actually, is from a social worker of 25 years who says, I've been doing safeguarding training every year for 25 years. This is the first time I've enjoyed it and the second time I've learned something. They learned something on the first one and then they yeah. just thought it's been a waste of their life. It. Whereas yeah. ours is then tailored to the needs of the delegates and the yeah. sector, et cetera, et cetera. And then sneaking in all of the values-led parts. And that just made me go, yeah, that's exactly why well, we do it. Kind of, you need to put that on the cover of your book if you haven't already, probably. Oh yeah, I don't think I have actually. Maybe oh, I there you go. You probably yeah. should. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for taking the time to read the introduction and the values chapter. I will send you the um, full please, book. Once. Please do. Yeah, I do. I will look forward to that. What I haven't said, and I, I guess I kind of should say as we're live, really, is what was your overall perspective? I did say that I'd um, ask you live. With On regard. the chapter and the introduction. Yeah. I thought that, like I said at the beginning, I wish I'd had a framework in my mind when I started delivering courses to people like 20 years ago. Because I think what you do is you make up as you go along. Uh, I think what you've presented is many years experience distilled into a methodology. And I think that's what's so attractive about it is that there is a methodology to it. And the values chapter, so I've not read the whole book yet. I look forward to that, but I've read the values chapter. And yeah, all resonates with what I believe. And I think we've explored some of the important themes. But it, as I read it, I was kind of thinking about so many examples from my, my own career about where it resonated and where I'd seen examples like that. And uh, I thought the idea of the suitcase that we bring with us is a really powerful image. So uh, I encourage people to read that. And I think that will really resonate with people. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Warren. I really... Yeah, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank, thank you for trusting me with it. Um, if people want to find out more about the REACH programme or yeah. about the Resilience Task Force, where can they yeah. find you and find out thank, about yourself? Well, thank you for asking. You can find me at my website at www.warrenlarkinassociates.co.uk and you can find the Resilience Task Force at www.resiliencetaskforce.co.uk and I'm on Twitter. I suppose I don't really do a huge amount of social media other than Twitter. It just forces me to stick to two and forty characters. So I think it's um, just an age thing, Warren. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, it probably Ages, is. Why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can do Twitter because it just means typing a few words. It's quite, it's quite simple. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Warren underscore Larkin. I think it is. All right, thanks, Tammy. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Warren. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you found this podcast both useful and enjoyable. If you'd like to access any of the free resources mentioned, assess your training against the methodology, or find out more about the Train the Trainer programme, please head to our website, trainingforinfluence.co.uk. And to finish, I'd just like to say, I truly believe that facilitating training is both an opportunity and a privilege. So thank you for recognising that effective values-led training can make a real difference to delegates, to organisations and ultimately to people accessing frontline services.